Welcome to Middle East Forum Century Radio. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM. It's a beautiful day here in Philadelphia, Wednesday, October 17th, 2018. We have been following at the forum for the past two weeks the disappearance of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, a Saudi dissident who was last seen entering into the Saudi Arabian consulate in Istanbul, Turkey, not to have been heard from again. The story goes as follows. A little bit of background before we get into the current events. Khashoggi was, at one time, in the closest of Saudi Arabia's intelligence circles, a former media advisor to former intelligence minister Prince Turkey, bin Faisal. We saw that he, at the uh, onset of the reign of Mohammed bin Salman, the current crown prince and defense minister of Saudi Arabia, after his elevation to power almost a year ago now, that he immediately became a dissident within the kingdom, imposing himself in self-imposed uh, exile in Washington, D.C., obtaining a green card, and he began writing columns for the Washington Post critical of the new Saudi leadership. He eventually meets a Turkish national that would eventually become his fiance and is convinced to go to Turkey prior to his wedding to obtain documents from the Saudi consulate there. Almost a week ago now today, he enters into the Saudi consulate, and he's never seen again. There have been rumors and rampant conversation throughout Middle Eastern media about what actually happened to Khashoggi, uh, alleged Saudi death squads, a uh, false flag conspiracy on behalf of the Muslim Brotherhood, the Iranians, the Turks, the Saudis, even the Americans being blamed for his death. But there are 10 questions that we have to answer about the Khashoggi disappearance that won't get through the mainstream media narrative. First, the overall message from Western media outlets and from anti-Iranian coalition uh, or anti-Iranian coalition forces is, is that the Saudi Arabian government is complicit in Khashoggi's death. He walked into a Saudi consulate, which under the Vienna Convention on Diplomatic um, Relations is technically Saudi soil, and then was allegedly cut up into pieces, uh, killed, dragged off, and even some media outlets say distilled in a vat of acid by a Saudi hit squad. The two planes, which the Turkish media are reporting, arrived in Istanbul prior to Khashoggi's uh, arrival to the consulate, allegedly contained 15 Saudi assassins. Khashoggi enters into the consulate, and then according to video footage that was taken by Turkish authorities from around the consulate, these 15 individuals were already present in the consulate waiting to spring a trap for Khashoggi. Five hours pass, his fiancée calls the Turkish police, and then by that time, on a parallel timeline, the Saudis are packing up their goods inside of the consulate and heading back to Riyadh on the same two planes that took them there only 24 hours beforehand. But these questions that I mentioned before, which were raised very intelligently by Lee Smith, a journalist uh, formerly of The Village Voice, of Tablet Magazine, of The Weekly Standard, and currently writing in The Federalist, are things that the readership and the listenership of the Middle East Forum Century Radio audience should be listening to. Lee Smith writes in The Federalist yesterday, number one, is there evidence that Khashoggi was murdered? 
Lee goes on to write, Turkish sources say there is. The U.S. press has reported that unnamed Turkish officials have told them, or unnamed secondhand Turkish sources have told them, that they have evidence, audio, and video, and that a team of Saudi officials detained, tortured, and killed Khashoggi. But then Smith makes a very important point. The only sources that the Western media has are coming from Turkey itself. No one from U.S. government media, maybe except for one leak that was uh, given to CNN, have been able to find whether or not Khashoggi is dead or alive. Now, my opinion is, is, is that if Khashoggi goes into the consulate, there's video showing him entering, yet there's no video showing him exiting, it would be in the Saudi interest to reveal him leaving that building if there was actually no action that took place there. But on the same time, he may have been spirited away in a rendition operation back to Saudi Arabia, or he may have actually stayed in the consulate. But this would also be disproven last night after Turkish authorities spent eight hours combing the consulate for DNA and other forensic evidence to see if they could prove whether Khashoggi was actually murdered. So on the flip side, he's probably not with us anymore, but we don't know the exact circumstances of how he came to meet his fate. The second question that Smith asks is why has Turkey asked Saudi Arabia to join its Khashoggi investigative team? According to press reports, Smith writes, the government in Ankara has asked Riyadh to help investigate what happened to Khashoggi. The Turkish foreign minister recently complained that the Saudis aren't cooperating in the full extent to uncover the circumstances of Khashoggi's disappearance. We would like a genuine cooperation from them. Now, Smith goes on to point out that a country which is accusing another country of conducting a hit operation on their soil would not probably be someone you would ask to have as a partner in a murder investigation. It's like inviting the murderer into your house and saying, hey guys, what do you think about this action that we're accusing you of taking, but at the same time, we'll ask you to join the party anyway. Now, Khashoggi himself has to be seen not just a former insider in Saudi circles, but also as someone who was connected to a much wider network. He was uh, claiming to be able to have a relationship with Osama bin Laden in the 1990s, interviewing him twice, during his uh, bin Laden's time in Sudan. Khashoggi was also sympathetic towards the Muslim Brotherhood and several anti-Saudi enemies of the oil-rich nation. Now, beyond that, one has to look at what has recently been happening to Turkey with their recent imprisonment of journalists. In fact, Turkey itself is the world's most uh, 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 guilty arbiter of imprisoning journalists. There are, I think, over 300 or 400 journalists sitting in Turkish prisons. So for them all of a sudden to have an opportunity to flip and to start saying that they're protecting the right for a free press and for journalism and they're feigning concern over Khashoggi's fate is really hypocritical. They should worry more about the journalists that are sitting in Turkish prisons and their justice system denying these individuals the right to speak freely rather than getting to the point of saying, hey, someone who's a foreign national was killed in Istanbul. Let's focus on them and ignore all of other of Turkey's human rights abuses. The last thing that we have to understand about why Turkey is inviting the Saudis into this network or not into this network, but into this investigation is that the Turks have a golden opportunity here for a PR whitewash of their other misdeeds. So on Sunday this week, they release American pastor Andrew Brunson, who is being held on trumped-up charges of being connected to a terror organization, when in reality, he was only an innocent Christian 
uh, pastor who was overseeing a congregation of 15 individuals in Turkey's third largest city, Izmir, and even according to the president of Turkey himself, was being held as a political prisoner by the Turkish judiciary and Turkish government to try to put pressure on the American government to extradite Fethullah Gulen, a man who lives about two hours north of us here in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, because Erdogan had blamed him for all of his domestic ills, including a failed July 2016 coup attempt. So Turkey on one day is able to get Brunson released, thereby trying to appease President Trump. And then on the second day, they now are the main actor on the world stage as it tries to solve the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. The third thing that Smith asks about, which I think is also is pretty pertinent here, is are internal Turkish issues a factor in the Khashoggi affair? And the fourth thing, which I think is even more important, is what does the Khashoggi affair have to do with the Gulf Cooperation Council Cold War? Since the hour that Khashoggi was reported missing, Al Jazeera, the Middle East Eye, and other Qatari national nationally owned news outlets have been reporting nonstop on the Khashoggi affair. This has been a golden opportunity, not just for the Turks to have a PR whitewash, but also for the Qataris to smear the Khashoggi affair in the eye of their principal rival in the Gulf region, Saudi Arabia. The Qataris have been on the outs with the Gulf countries for the past year and a half since the enactment of the blockade by Saudi forces in July of 2017 against their neighbor, Qatar. Now, even more so than the Qataris seeing this as a golden opportunity for them to be able to blame Saudi Arabia for this affair, the Qataris have a principled alliance, not just with Iran, which is something that we've talked about on this program in the past, but also with Turkey. After the Turkish lira downspiraled with the currency crashing after President Trump's imposition of the uh, steel and aluminum tariffs, which was a direct punishment because of the Brunson affair, Qatar bailed out Turkish banks with a $15 billion cash infusion. So going back to the original point here, Khashoggi is not the main issue here. And if there's Western forces which are saying that the United States and its allies should sanction Saudi Arabia... They're doing so because they want to break up the anti-Iran-Israel-Saudi Arabia-American alliance, which is a much more principled goal than just the life of one poor journalist. I know that's a draconian thing to say, and I really feel a lot of empathy for Khashoggi's family, but do not allow anti- uh, or do not allow pro-Iranian forces like the Turks, like the Qataris, and the noticeably silent Iranians themselves take advantage of this affair. At the end of the day, it was an Islamist being murdered by another Islamist regime in an Islamist country. That's what happens in the Middle East. Next, Joseph Humeyer. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The Forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly, we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org or check us out on Twitter at MEForum. The Middle East Forum, protecting your interests. Every day, the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, 
we have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other, for our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the Marines. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM Talk Radio. My next guest is a friend, a fellow at the Middle East Forum, and more importantly, a pioneer in the studies of Middle Eastern interventions in Latin America. Joseph Hugh Meyer is executive director of the Center for a Secure Free Society. He is a global security expert specializing on transnational threats in the Western Hemisphere. He also provides regular briefings on international terrorism, transnational organized crime, Islamism, and Iran's influence in Latin America to various entities within the U.S. Department of Defense and intelligence community. Mr. Hugh Meyer, welcome to the program. Thank you, Greg. And, and uh, well, thanks for the introduction. And also thanks for that commercial on the Marine Corps. It brings me back to my times in the Marines. Right. And, and now, Joseph, you are a former uh, uh, intelligence NCO in the U.S. Marine Corps, correct? Yeah, yep. I served from 99 to 2006, and so I one of those, in between there, I was uh, did one tour in Iraq. Right. So you don't just, uh, as, an, as an individual, I believe that you were uh, born in Puerto Rico? No, no. Well, I was born here. But you were born here, born but Bolivia. you have Bolivian, Bolivia. You have Bolivians, Bolivian heritage, That's right, and, yeah. and you, you've spent a significant amount of time not just studying these issues, but you are one of the most uh, uh, requested Spanish-speaking Latino Americans, Hispanic Americans, on this subject, not just here in the United States, on Telemundo, on uh, CNN Espanol, but also throughout South America, correct? Yeah, so that's that's the kind of cool thing in the sense that, you know, I am a Latino and, uh, you know, my parents are from Bolivia, so, uh, you know, physically, I know it's just radio, but if you you were just TV and you could watch me, I, I look Bolivian, right? And so when I go to Latin America, they always look at me like a Latin, and until I start speaking Spanish with my kind of gringo accent, so they call me like a, bo- <laughs> a, a, a bully gringo. Is what I am in Latin so, America. So you're, you're spending se- you're, you're you're spending seven years in marine intelligence. You leave in 2006, and then I think that you have this uh, scratching inkling in the back of your head that you're going to make your career out of your focus on not just your time spent in the Middle East and protecting American interests and American uh, uh, security necessities in that region, but then for the next uh, 12 years. You get to the point where you're the head of a think tank that focuses almost exclusively on these issues. Tell us a little bit about the organization you lead, the Center for a Secure Free Society. Yeah, well, let me take you a little bit back to, the, to my background, which you, you, you're you alluding to. Which you know, So I spent not that whole time in Intel, but I spent part of that time in Intel. And, and, and it was interesting way that after I got back from Iraq, um, so I, did, I was part of the initial march up in 2003, the one that went to take down Saddam. And and when you go through the southern part of Iraq, I mean, the only thing you really hear about is Iran. Uh, I mean, Iran is a Shia-controlled area, you know, the, the, the famous pilgrimage from Qum to Karbala. So I got a quick crash course on the IRGC while I was down there, while well, I was over there uh, in, in the Middle East and Iraq. And my next deployment was to Latin America. 
Uh, it was a circumnavigation by the Navy called um, UNITAS. It's, it's an annual uh, deployment that you basically do military bilateral training. And one of the interesting things is that I also heard about Iran during that deployment. This is back in 2004. So that kind of sparked my curiosity to, to hear about Iran, both on one side of the world and to hear about them again in another side of the world kind of shows you this global perspective of how Iran's really operating. So fast forward to when I become part of the think tank. So the think tank is actually something that existed at a foundation before, and we spun it off in 2012 to become an independent think tank center. Uh, and I gave it that focus because I felt like this was an undervalued threat. I felt like this was something that members of the intelligence community knew about, people in the defense uh, department and other, other elements of U.S. national security knew about, but the broader public was completely clueless as to how big this problem was. That's changing. I think now fast forward to where we're at today, 2018, I mean, you're seeing all kinds of things including, you know, the Justice Department just recently created a new task force on transnational organized crime, but included Hezbollah in that task force. So that it, I think things are now changing, but it's after several years, almost a decade of constantly, uh, you know, uh, talking about it, analyzing it, researching it, and presenting it to policymakers and uh, defense officials. So I'd like to focus on two publications that have come out in October and in September. First in September, a review of your most recent publication with Elon Berman, Iran's Strategic mm-hmm. Penetration of Latin America, specifically a book review that was in yeah. Middle East Quarterly. Uh, Penny Watson from Sam Houston State University writes, the authors, you and Berman, caution Washington against neglecting its neighbors and allowing Islamic radicalism and Latin American socialism to form a geostrategic alliance that poses a military threat to the United States in its own backyard. Hugh Meyer and Berman conclude with the strategy to counter Alba's regional influence and urge Washington to support regional governments in all arenas. We'll get back to Alba in a second. But you then zero in on the response that Washington has uh, uh, effectuated in Latin America in an article that you wrote last week for The Hill titled Washington's Silent War Against Hezbollah in Latin America. And it begins like this. On July 11, 2018, Joseph writes, the government of Argentina took its first action against Hezbollah by freezing the financial assets of 14 individuals belonging to the Barakat clan in South America. You then go on to mention the Brazilian federal police arresting the leader of this clan, Assad Ahmad Barakat, and you conclude your essay by saying, Latin America is paying attention to the whole of government approach that is formed in Washington, that approach that you had called for in the book that you and Elon had edited. There is still much more to do to curb Hezbollah's crime terror activities, and action by our regional partners is critical to success. President Trump would be wise to capitalize on this momentum and prioritize Latin America in our global counterterrorism efforts. Now, before I get to a question for you, when I think of Latin America, I'm thinking of the 1970s, the 1980s, Pablo Escobar, the cartels operating in Mexico, um, you know, smuggling networks, a little bit about terrorism with the Shining Path and maybe some of the other um, organizations that were prevalent in the 60s, 70s and 80s. But I'm not thinking about Hezbollah operatives, ISIS operatives, Iranian diplomats that are actually intelligence uh, assets for that government operating in the region. So, So two questions. Number one. What is the ALBA alliance, and why is it important for Americans to know about it? And two, what is the purpose of Iranian and other Middle Eastern incursions into Latin America, and how does that harm American national security interests? Okay, so I'll I'll unpack the second question first, and then I'll move into the ALBA. But uh, just to kind of encouch what you're saying, and 
you know, and I know you know this, Greg, um, but just for the listeners, um, it's true. When people think of Latin America, they think of, you know, some people just think of, you know, mojitos and beaches and, you know, vacation destinations. But other folks that are working on stuff, even the work, folks that are working on national security issues, think about just drug trafficking and social conflict and things that you hear about uh, in the press. But, you know, those that pay attention closely, especially on the counterterrorism angle, the largest Islamic terrorist attack in the Western Hemisphere before September 11th happened in Argentina. Uh, and, and it happened twice. It happened in 1992 and 1994, where a collective 114 people were killed in Argentina with two bombings, one that attacked the Israeli embassy and the other that attacked the uh, Amia Jewish Culture Center uh, in that city. And, and that was a huge attack. That was Argentina's 9-11. If you want to even say that was Latin America's 9-11 before we had 9-11, uh, you know, more than a decade later. So I think that that sets a precedent for the, the level of threat that this can be in the region. And, and it's not just a threat to the United States. It's a threat to these countries in Latin America, which are allies and neighbors. Uh, so that's one. Uh, kind of moving forward, you mentioned the book. And, and I think this has been a big part of the effort that I've been engaged in and with, you know, Ilan Berman is a good friend. Uh, he's a good colleague, a top expert on Iran, a good friend of the Middle East Forum as well. And, and, and why I'm very proud to be part of the Middle East Forum, uh, friends with Ilan, working with the, all these other Middle East oriented think tanks is because I want to make that connection and I want to make that connection relevant to our friends and neighbors in Latin America. So if you, if anyone reads the book or, or buys the book, what they're going to see is it's not written by me and Ilan. It's edited by me and Ilan. It's written by Latin American experts. And why that's so important is because it's one thing for Joseph Humeyer to go and testify before Congress and say uh, Iran has blown the problem in Latin America. And, you know, they'll, 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 and during, when the book was published in 2014 during the Obama administration, they may try to counter that. But it's totally different when you have the now vice president of Colombia who wrote the forward for the book, and she was a former minister, uh, saying Iran's a problem in my country. It's a much different uh, narrative. It's a much different uh, projection uh, of the problem set. So kind of leading to your question of what, you know, why is this problematic? It's problematic on many levels. I mean, if you think about it from Iran's perspective, and, you know, me and Ilan try to do this a little bit, a little bit of mirror imaging, uh, you know, Iran has a, has a clear, I think, understanding that uh, their problems in their near abroad, in the Middle East, uh, while they're multifaceted and have all kinds of angles, fundamentally, their biggest challenge is the United States. Uh, uh, Israel, Saudi Arabia, all the alliances, they're, they're, they're problematic, but if, the, if they could find a way to get the United States out of the Middle East, they, they can have freer reign in the Middle East. And, and how are they going to do that when they look to the right and, and the U.S. is in Afghanistan, they look to the left and, and we're in Iraq? How, how are they going to do that? Well, they have to establish that same level of credible threat in our region. Uh, basically, they have to diminish that geographic disadvantage that they've had over time. But they can't do it the way we do. They're not going to send carriers to the Caribbean. They don't have that capability conventionally. So they'll do it in an asymmetric level. They'll establish mosques. They'll establish cultural centers. They'll stand up embassies. They'll set up front companies. They use Hezbollah and, and, and the Lebanese uh, Arab networks in Latin America. So they've used all the asymmetric tools to their advantage to essentially encroach on the United States, not just from Latin America, but also from Canada and also from within. And I think that is a lot of their asymmetric strategy that, you know, IRGC operatives like uh, Hassan uh, Tabasi talk about when they talk about we, we, we know how to get to the United States. And so to me, at a 50,000-foot level, it's an asymmetric response, but also a, a, an ability to threaten the United States uh, by using our Latin American neighbors. So you, you get into the specificity of where Iran is trying to apply their influence, and you mention an area called the tri-border region. 
which I, I think is between, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, it's Argentina, uh, Brazil, Paraguay? Correct. Yes. So what exactly is the tri-border region, and, and why should we, we know about it, and, and what is Iran trying to do there? Yeah, so the tri-border is an area at the south of South America. It's all the way at the bottom of the continent. It's, you know, like you said, it's the crossroads of Argentina, Paraguay, and Brazil. And it's, it's an area that the governments of those countries don't really have a strong presence. Uh, it's kind of a stateless area, and it's also a free trade area. There's a lot of commerce that moves in and out of this area. It's, one of, it's considered a free trade zone in FTV, so it doesn't have that same cust- uh, in terms of tariffs and taxes and customs that you know normal ports have. Um, and, and because it's a border area, it has a lot of cross-border traffic, both in migrate, migration and also commercial traffic. And, and, and so the Arab communities that have migrated there, you know, many, almost you know, half a century ago, uh, in some even more, uh, migrated there and established commercial enterprises that when Hezbollah got stood up in the 1980s, they quickly tapped into this as a financial network. They saw there was huge Lebanese populations. And we got to remember, you know, there's more Lebanese in the world than there are in, in Lebanon. So in Brazil is one of those countries where there's upwards of se- seven to eight million uh, people in Brazil of Lebanese descent. Uh, so there's a huge diaspora in that country. And so they, t- they use it as a way to tap into to get access to their financial networks, their companies, and to co- co-op these communities so they can create uh, money laundering networks. Uh, and that's one of the reasons the tribal area is so important. This recent arrest that happened uh, just last month uh, on this guy named Assad Ahmad Barakat is an, an individual that's head of a huge, huge money laundering clan called the Barakat clan that was used to finance the terror attack. In the in in the 1990s against the 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 Amia Culture Center, the 1994 attack. So this is a, a very important get for 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 well for the Brazilians for now. But hopefully he gets extradited uh, to the United States. And what this symbolizes to me, and what this symbolizes for U.S. policy, is that for the longest time in uh, the U.S. and I've been involved in a lot of these discussions with uh, you know the Defense Department, intelligence community about what is the nature of Hezbollah and what's the extent of Hezbollah in Latin America. And for the longest time, people didn't want to give them credit as a, simply working as a terrorist organization. They want to say they're all they're involved in just drug trafficking, and that's secondary to the primary mission in, in the Middle East, in Lebanon. And I say, well, the two are connected because the money that they make from Latin America is the money that they use to send fighters to Syria, to attack uh, posts on the border in Israel. Uh, I mean, they have to finance themselves. Obviously, they get money from Iran and other, and other sources, but the illicit side is huge. It's, it's really bad. I'd say it, it surpasses maybe even what they get from Iran. And so on that level, I think that the, the direction that on policy that we've been trying to push this is that the Hezbollah is recognizing the United States not just as a terror organization, but as equally considered as a transnational criminal organization. And that would allow Latin America to pay more attention because they understand transnational organized crime. They're still kind of struggling with what Islamist terrorism, but they get drug trafficking and organized crime. Right, and I, and I think in the conversation that you and I have had in Washington, D.C., there's only a few Latin American countries that have anti-terrorism legislation on the books, correct? Yeah, there's only, there's very few that actually have. About half the countries in Latin America have any kind of law, but even among those half of the countries that do have some kind of law, none of them have provisions that deal with foreign terrorist organizations. It was all, those laws were designed to deal with domestic threats, domestic terror threats, the most infamous being the FARC in Colombia and the Shining Path in Peru. But uh, now what we're seeing, uh, and, and actually what existed before, but what we're starting to realize now is that those domestic terror organizations are connected to international terrorist organizations, but the laws aren't adequate that they can designate 
membership in those foreign terror groups. I'll give you a quick example. In Peru, a case that I'm uh, very intimately involved in as, as an expert witness is a case against an accused Hezbollah operative that was planning a terror attack uh, in or around Peru. And, and this individual didn't smuggle any drugs or launder any money or do anything like that. So they don't have him on that. They have him on immigration fraud because he had false uh, passport, which most of these Hezbollah operatives do. Um, but because he said he's a member of Hezbollah, that wasn't good enough to, to convict him. Because being if he said he was a member of the Shining Path, he would be in jail for 20 years. He'd be sentenced to 20 years. But because he said he's a member of Hezbollah, the reaction from the court is, what is Hezbollah? <laughs> and they don't know if that's a terror organization. They don't know what what is it. So my job was to go down there and explain to him what it was. And thankfully, my testimony led to uh, the case being moved to the Supreme Court, where it's going to be retried uh, next year. So hopefully we get a conviction on that. And if we do, that will be the first time in the history of Latin America that a Hezbollah operative has been convicted of terror-related charges. I mean, this guy was found with nitroglycerin traces on his hands, yeah. right? He had fertilizer. Yeah, and, uh, I mean, there was bomb-making it, materials in his flat. Yeah. He was literally caught red-handed. And, literally uh, caught red-handed. And, and, and a thousand pictures in his iPad and, and his cell phone of you know very touristy pictures like airports and routes and places where the Israeli ambassador was frequenting and you know, public infrastructure. I mean, when they when they presented this evidence, his defense was, "I like to take pictures." So, I was like, sure. <laughs> well, let's hope that no more uh, amateur photographers of uh, Lebanese descent who had frequently who had frequented Southern Beirut and the Dahia, you know, yeah, uh, has correct, a stronghold, correct. end up in uh, in Lima. I would be remiss, Joseph, if we didn't uh, wish you a happy birthday today. Ah, uh, okay. Today is is Joseph Hugh Myers. Uh, we won't we won't say the age, but it's uh, October seventeenth, and uh, yeah. and and uh, thank you for joining us. I consider it a pleasure that we get to have you on this special day for you. We've got about fifteen seconds left. How can we find yeah. more about your work? How can we follow you on Twitter? And uh, and uh, what's one thing that you want to share with our audience that we haven't been able to to hear yet? Yeah, well, securefreesociety.org is the website. You can find me personally on Twitter and J, at J.N. Humeyer. Obviously, the Middle East Forum is a great place to look at some of my writing. I, mean, I work uh, very closely with you guys on a lot of these issues. Um, and I just want to leave the audience with essentially pay attention to Latin America because it's the next frontier of counterterrorism. It really is the next place where we can make a difference. And if the Trump administration, you know, who, who has a slogan of make America great again, uh, if you want to make America great again, you got to make the Americas great again. And, and, and part of that deals with dismantling Hezbollah's crime terror network in the region. That's a great way to, to fight, even fight them back in the Middle East. Joseph Humeyer, Middle East Forum Fellow and Executive Director of a Center for Secure and Free Society. Thanks for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks. Next, Tarek Fatah. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rationable excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East studies, Check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? 
What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't seen your lap in months. And even more stuff. But still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed. And they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs. And it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at Goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. Welcome back. This is Middle East Forum Century Radio 1, WWDB, 860 AM. I'm Greg Roman. Today is Wednesday, October 17th, and we shortly will be joined by Tarek Fatah. Uh, he is uh, experiencing some technical difficulties right now, but we'll be discussing uh, his recent article on Saudi Arabia, going back to the uh, beginning of our, of our headlines in our opening segment. And we'll also hear a little bit more about his participation in a journalist mission to the United Kingdom to take place next week on October 23rd, the day that Tommy Robinson, the British free speech dissident uh, and so-called uh, self-styled enemy of the state, will be back on trial at the Old Bailey. Before we get into that, we have some news coming out of the region. Iran has extended the range of its land-to-sea ballistic missiles to 700 kilometers. That's over 435 miles, a senior Iranian military official said on Tuesday, as tensions over the weapons rise with the United States. The head of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, Amirali Hajizadeh, was quoted as saying, We have managed to make land-to-sea ballistic, not cruise, missiles that can hit any vessel or ship from 700 kilometers. He was also quoted as saying by Fars News that Iran, which is having its missile program as being, in quotes, purely defensive, has threatened to disrupt oil shipments through the Strait of Hormuz in the Gulf if Washington tries to strangle Tehran's oil exports. One thing that hasn't been reported, though, is a deal that was struck between Hassan Rouhani, the president of Iran, and Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. Rouhani, uh, Rouhani signed a deal allowing the Iranians to ship every uh, bit of crude oil that they're pumping inside of Iran to Russian refineries to then be able to get out to have a refined capacity to take their oil assets that does not rely on the export of their oil through the ports, through the Straits of Hormuz, and also through the uh, um, terminals, which are currently being watched by the United States and subject to American sanctions. So it's very important to focus on what will be going on with this new Russian-Iranian deal and if it will be a successful way for the Iranians to subvert the Iranian, the American sanctions against them. Now, we're joined by Tarek Fatah, a Canadian journalist and writer for the Toronto Star, as well as the founder of the Muslim Canadian Confer Congress, a uh, group committed to fighting Islamism and promoting the separation between religion and state, and a fellow at the Middle East Forum. Tarek, welcome to the program. Well, thank you for having me. No problem. Now, I understand that uh, there was a great article you wrote 
about Saudi Arabia's uh, massacre bloodbath that came out in the Star yesterday at around 4 p.m. Haven't had a oh, chance. That's Toronto Sun, you mean? Right, right. Yeah, okay. Uh, Toronto Sun, I apologize. Don't want to insult or mix up the publications. <laughs> not to uh, worry. But you're, you're writing about the Saudi case. What can you tell us about the Khashoggi case, the Canadian perspective on it, and, and dive a little bit deeper into what you write in your article yesterday? Well, they, uh, from my perspective, I've lived there in the Saudi Arabia for uh, almost a decade. Uh, this is the way the Saudi regime operates. Uh, it's a very medieval concept, you know. Uh, the, the, the very concept of having ambassadors or consulates or um, territories overseas um, emanates from the question of the nation state. Now, Saudi Arabia is not a nation state at all. It is a it is uh, probably the only country named after a person. And uh, so it is run on that uh, very um, autocratic, well, autocratic would be a very mild term. <laughs> but, uh, w- 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 the, the behavior is that they own uh, the territory and the people's loyalty. And anyone going against them uh, will be eliminated. Uh, and, and this is a phenomena coming from um, the October 1973 war and the oil boom that followed. It's a bizarre byproduct of it. Prior to that, nobody gave much attention to what happened in Saudi Arabia. Uh, so it is clear-cut, understood by almost everyone within the kingdom, and all my sources that I have over there, uh, having lived there 10 years, that it it was an authorized uh, killing. Uh, there's nothing immoral or uh, uh, from the Saudi Sharia perspective to do so. Uh, from their point of view, uh, people who are critics of the Saudi regime are uh, apostates or blasphemous uh, as such. Uh, so uh, they're caught in a bizarre world of the... Um, I would say the 12th and the 21st century. <laughs> so most evidence, and I mean, it would be hard to dispute that a individual entering into a consulate and being recorded on video, albeit from the Turkish authorities, and yes. then not to be seen again five hours later, his fiance picks up the phone, calls Turkish police. Parallel to this, we have other video evidence of two Saudi flights landing in Istanbul, uh, carrying, uh, I think, uh, squads of eight and, and, and seven individuals, uh-huh. some yes, coordinating yes. at a hotel, some going to uh, the consul's home, all arriving to the consulate prior to Khashoggi actually arriving there. And they leave, and Khashoggi doesn't leave. So something yes. happened to him there. Now, I think the bigger debate here, and, and there is a debate to be held, not about his fate, which unfortunately uh, he, he's probably no longer with us, but what yeah, should... thousands have died like that. Right. He is just because uh, of his family's name. Uh, his his dad was a very prominent uh, personality, Adnan uh, Khashoggi, of his time, during King Khalid's time. And uh, because uh, of the family prestige that he carried, um, it has become news. But so many people have been killed over there, or had their... Uh, just a second, let me get out of this place. Sure, and, and so when, uh, when, we're, when you're speaking about this, just a little bit of background on Khashoggi. 
Uh, he, he's yeah. he's the media advisor to Prince Turkey when Turkey was the intelligence minister. Uh, he, absolutely, he's an insider. Yeah, so, he, he's uh, in the, he's in the royal court, and he only leaves when MBS Mohammed bin Salman yes, uh, yes. rises to power, and 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 basically he leaves Saudi Arabia, imposing a, sent, a, a sort of a self exile by moving to Washington D.C. and and then also doing some globe trotting. But I, I right. wanted I wanted to get back to to his uh, murder. And, and the repercussions that it portends for Saudi Arabia itself. Now, there's been two arguments that have been made in Washington, D.C. You have Lindsey Graham yesterday on Fox News saying the MBS has to step down and the Saudis have to find someone to replace him. So a call for, I don't want to call it regime change, but, but, but a change in the current administration of the Saudi National Security Network. Mm-hmm. On the other mm-hmm. hand, you have individuals saying that this isn't just something where MBS has to go. The entire West has to sanction uh, Saudi Arabia to put them back in the 12th century. They, they shouldn't be rewarded for uh, killing a, a dissident in, in a foreign land. And then there's a third camp that says Saudi Arabia is too important in the anti-Iran coalition. Let's encourage them to reform more, to release guys like uh, Raif uh, um, Badawi, uh, a, a human rights uh, 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 prisoner of conscience, let's call him, in Riyadh right now, serving, I think, a, a seven-year jail term for, yes. for allegedly so, insulting Islam. W- what camp do you fall into, and what do you I, think the West should look, do? Look, I, I personally uh, am very skeptical and uh, disappointed at the position taken against Iran. The, uh, the problem is that Iran, whenever the Mullah regime goes, uh, almost 90% of the population will be celebrating. In Saudi Arabia, almost 100% of the population is imbibed in Islamism and uh, anti-West doctrinaire Islam. And uh, unfortunately, neither the United States, not even Israel, makes that distinction as to who the real enemies uh, of uh, human civilization are. Uh, Of course, Iran, uh, I mean... uh, I've come from the next-door country. Iran is a brutal regime. But uh, to understand the difference between the two populations, uh, make serious mistakes in future... uh, uh, make serious mistakes in future strategy. Uh, Undermining Iranian regime would be a different thing. Saudi Arabia, let me assure you, is not even a country. Uh, the, The country that existed was... Uh, the, the kingdom of Hijaz, over which in 1925, the Sultanate of Najd invaded and occupied it. And uh, in, uh, since 1935, they uh, amalgamated uh, the holy places of Islam into Saudi Arabia. They had occupied and carried out massacres in Mecca and Medina. So uh, we, we are dealing with um, uh, a sort of a tribal uh, appropriation of Islam to uh, generate hundreds of millions of anti-Western, anti-Christian, anti-Jewish people. That's not done in Iran. I'll be very honest with you. Nobody goes around teaching uh, or believing what the mullahs say. In Saudi Arabia, everyone wears the same clothes every day. Every Saudi man wears the same attire Around the year, it's like the Mao's Red Guards. 
and nobody seems to be surprised by it. It's a, it's fascism, Islamo-fascism, deeply embedded in the soul of the Saudi, and that has crept into Turkey. Uh, we've seen that over the last twenty years. Pakistan is completely wiped out uh, of its uh, uh, indigenous culture. Uh, it has gone to Maldives now. You can imagine that Maldives, the Palestinian Authority, Lebanon, uh, uh, all these countries have come out solidly behind uh, Saudi Arabia. And that news has not yet uh, printed. I mean, uh, Maldives just had an election, and it's in the Indian Ocean. It's more closer to India than any Arab country. Yet, the influence of the mosques over there is such that the country had to go solidly and support Saudi Arabia and condemn uh, the United States. So uh, there is a dearth in the West of understanding the phenomena of Islamism and distinguishing it from uh, the fascist nature of uh, the Saudi regime. There is hardly anyone who... 20 times a day, if somebody goes to a mosque, doesn't pray, uh, doesn't uh, read the Surah Fatiha, which is the first page of the Quran, uh, which attacks uh, or denigrates Jews and Christians. And as long as Muslims were 90% illiterate or 85% were non-Arabic speaking people, uh, it was fine. They didn't know what they were saying. But in the West, everyone knows what they are saying. And they are tax funded by our dollars to continue to spread this hate. And almost every imam is a Saudi-trained uh, cleric. So we have a serious problem in uh, in trying to understand Saudi Arabia. Uh, we try to analyze it the way we would analyze, say, for example, Turkey, which which is a rogue state anyway. But it's uh, Turkey is a state belonging to the Turks, which oppresses Kurds. Right, but Iran, Turkey is also a, a sort of a bellwether problem, where if Iran is the problem today, Turkey is the problem of tomorrow, or, or at least its today, government. But, but you, made, you made a good point, though, where yeah. in, in Iran, most of the population, 50% are Persian, the other 50% are minorities. You, you write about Balochistan all the time, yes, which is something yeah, but, but, that, that, that's very important to take into, 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 into account. But if we look at the Saudi uh, sort of where the precipice of where they are to go after this affair right now. I think that the West has an opportunity to not necessarily isolate the Saudis, but to demand reforms with a carrot and stick. They won't. I'm not saying that they will or, or, okay. or if yeah, they won't, yeah, but, yeah. but but the, theoretically, if we're talking about the, sure, um, sure. The, the where the Saudis are right now, I think that they're stuck. This is their worst crisis since 9-11, I think. I mean, arguably, it, are, it are, is. And, 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 and because right now it's, it's an opportunity to say to MBS and to say to his minions in Riyadh and Jeddah, if you don't get with the program and if you don't release prisoners of conscience, allow for democratic reform. It doesn't have to necessarily even be democratic reforms, allowing uh, women yeah. to run for municipal councils. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. you better get your act together. We know you're important for the anti-Iran alliance. But guess what, guys? We're going to start looking in with your country and in your practices. And if you don't go with the program, you're going to go back to your 12th century doctrin doctrinal uh, beliefs. And, and the, the only thing that I'm concerned a little bit about with that is 
is I don't want to see the Saudis, and I'm speaking now as a strategist, not as yeah. someone uh, uh, putting moral norms, which, which is very important too, yeah. but at the forefront of my head, I don't want them to fall into a Russian or, or Chinese orbit. If the Russians have the Iranians, uh, they could easily replace them with the Saudis. Yeah. I mean, the Iranians are going to the Chinese pocket right now. So these are, these are things the, we have to the, think about that when, 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 when we call for repercussions. Absolutely. Here's my... Uh, uh, this would work, I think, if the uh, leadership in the United States, and I, for lack of a better word, I would say, uh, were less intellectually corrupted. And my point is, from the Clinton days to right now, even Mr. Obama, you only have to get hold of the ambassador. Now, if you, re you must be recalling Ambassador Patterson, who was in Islamabad and then in, uh, then in Egypt. They all become lobbyists of the Saudi regime. And Prince Bandar bin Sultan has written extensively about it as how to deal with retired American diplomats and ambassadors. They are spending more money on the Hill uh, uh, as lobbyists. The only way out is to eliminate Saudi lobbying in Washington, D.C., and then talk this. Send a few lobbyists packing from there, and they'll get the message. You cannot do this in, a, in, a, in an atmosphere where uh, the private sector would say, well, fair enough, I'm getting a uh, $1,000 an hour fee to consult Saudi Arabia. I'm free to do that. I have 40 years of diplomatic experience. This is happening by tinpit dictators in Pakistan. Saudi Arabia is a, is a much better funded, uh, a, a better resourceful place. Right. And they, they, they know the how to wield have, the, uh, the levers of influence. Um, absolutely. They have to, the, the, the thing that the United States should say is enough of the nonsense in Yemen, period. We are not going to send you any more surface-to-air missiles to stop what's coming from the Houthis. Something very concrete has to be said. Democratic reform is not going to come there. The people uh, who are suffering uh, under the Saudis simply get out of the kingdom. Most of my friends are now no longer in the kingdom. They are in, uh, in the United States or Great Britain. Many of the women uh, in Saudi Arabia are far more educated. Uh, the mothers and the wives of Saudi are far more enlightened than the husbands or their sons or their fathers because they come study in the United States and stay as long as possible in the social arts area. So they're studying anthropology or sociology or philosophy. And that, by the way, makes you enlightened <laughs> you know, by Ta default. Tarek, we, we, we've, got, we've got about a minute left. Uh, okay. you're, 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 you're going to the United Kingdom next week. On, I, I might not. I have you might a, not. a cancer uh, a treatment uh, tomorrow, and it's only if the doctors give me a go-ahead, then I go, because uh, that keeps me down, uh, <laughs> my, my immunization. I don't know what else they're trying to keep me alive with, but uh, my spirits are with uh, Tommy Robinson. Can, can you tell us a little bit about the uh, trip, even, even if you're not going? What's the purpose of it? What were you the hoping purpose? to attain out of it? Well, nobody's reporting <laughs> on uh, the, the case of Tommy Robinson. I mean, he's going to be sent to jail, and the newspaper, the journalists have predetermined 
that uh, no, he should he he should be behind bars. And uh, I don't I don't understand how much of a white guilt is carried by uh, the mainstream communities in the West. But to punish him and to accord some bail to people accused of rape uh, is astonishing. And yet nobody wishes to speak. So. Uh, there was a, a, a plan to have six, seven people from around the world go there, report on it, so we bypass the press. Uh, but somebody's going from my newspaper, so at least the coverage will be there. I look forward to uh, seeing the coverage. Tarek Fanta, columnist, Toronto Sun and Fellow at the Middle East Forum. Thanks for joining us this morning. Take care, sir. Bye-bye. Next, our 212 segment. Fascism was a danger to American interests in the early 20th century, communism in the last half of that century, and in the 21st century, we find our new ideological enemy, Islamism. Islamist Watch argues that violence is not the only or even the best way to apply Islamist ideas in Western liberal democracies. Islamist Watch monitors and exposes the growing influence of non-violent radical Islamist groups in the West while empowering moderate Muslims. Radical Islam is the problem. Mainstream Islam is the solution. Read more at www.islamist-watchwatch.org or check us out on Twitter at Islamist Watch. Introducing the YMCA. What, you already know the Y? Or so you think. Sure, you know the Y for a swim, a workout, even a game of hoops. But did you know we're more than that? We're a cause. When you take your jump shot at the Y, someone else is getting job training. Take a cardio class while kids are in an after-school enrichment program. Practice your downward-facing dog as a teen practices her leadership skills. That's the Y. We work with people no matter their age, income, or background and give them the opportunity to learn, grow, and thrive, all with one simple goal in mind. Does just that. Strengthen our community. And we've got so much more that does just that. So while you might think of the Y as that place for lifting weights, we're also about lifting entire communities. Introducing the Y. We're so much more than a place. We're a cause. Visit ymca.net slash more. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio on WWDB 860 AM. Now for our last four minutes, we have two subjects to speak about for two minutes each in our two-on-two segment. We already spoke this morning about Saudi Arabia. We spoke about the Tommy Robinson rally that will be taking place in London on October 23rd, uh, the day of his court hearing. We had a little bit of a hearing about Latin America and Iranian incursions and influence there and Hezbollah's operations there. But a topic that has not been covered uh, beyond the, the topics of the day is what's going on in the western part of the Middle East in Egypt. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi has extended a nationwide state of emergency, state of emergency first infected in April from October 15th. The state of emergency first imposed in April 2017 after two church bombings that killed 47 people has been continually extended since. There's two stories that i like to point to, one in Al-Ahram, an Egyptian newspaper, and the second in the New York Times that speaks about the Egyptian campaign to wipe out Islamist extremists, those who have an affinity towards ISIS in the Sinai Peninsula, and the second group, a Libyan-backed ISIS cell in Western Egypt. 
Egypt right now is at the precipice and the brink of almost defeating the ISIS forces in the Sinai Peninsula. But it is having a very hard time clamping down on Libyan extremism. One of my thoughts is, is that the Egyptian government should be wholeheartedly supported by the American government in its efforts to stamp out the last two remaining ISIS cells on its border, but it should be very careful. While it's focusing on ISIS, the Muslim Brotherhood is gaining in terms of their dimensions of programs now being given a chance to go in the southern regions of that country. If Egypt doesn't focus on all of its extremist elements in the country, it will have to continue extending its state of emergency to the degradation of its own citizens. Another area that we have to focus on that we did not mention is on Syria. Iraqi Foreign Minister Ibrahim al-Jafari has urged the Arab League to accept Syria's membership once again as part of the intensified efforts of the Syrian regime and its allies to bring the seven-year conflict to a conclusion. No one can isolate Syria, al-Jafari announced during a recent visit to Damascus, in which he also praised the Syrian government for being strong facing hardships. Al-Jafari concluded by calling for dialogue in order to restore ties as soon as possible. The Arab League which includes some 22 member countries, froze Syria's membership after the eruption of the civil war in 2011, which was followed by sanctions and the severing of diplomatic ties between regional governments and the regime of President Bashar al-Assad. Now, on the eastern side of Syria, we have the Kurdish region, which constitutes 30% of the Syrian territory, which is right now moving towards independence. Syrian Foreign Minister Walid al-Mu'allam said on Monday that federalism is contrary to the current constitution. So you have the Iraqi Prime Minister calling for a uh, reconciliation with Arab countries, but you still have internal dissent in Syria in itself. Like we said a few weeks ago, Syria is only on the brink of the next war in the country, one which is being dictated by foreign interests rather than domestic rebellion. This was a very interesting program this morning where we had Tariq Fatah, and we also had Joseph Hugh-Meyer uh, joining us. Once again, happy birthday to Mr. Hugh-Meyer. And even more so, I think that next week we'll be having the results of the Robinson trial. And we'll be covering it live here on WWDB 860 AM. Greg Roman from Middle East Forum Century Radio. Delaney Anchik, our production assistant. Elisa Barbunis, our production uh, director. And Michael Levinson providing us with content. Have a great day.